Yeah. So one of the biggest pushbacks, which is really interesting, is that, yeah, you know, you can convince people that there's a lot of suffering involved and, and they'll agree with you once, you know, at least once they've talked to me, they, they, it's hard. So, but the biggest setback, which I was surprised by is chai. People cannot give up their chai. And, you know, we make chai with milk. Traditionally, we make it with, with dairy milk and cow's milk. And, and it's just something that Indians drink. Like we drink, you know, all the time in the more four or five times a day. And, and that was one of the biggest uh, setbacks uh, that I kept coming across when I spoke to people about giving up dairy. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Nerva Patel. Nerva is one of the executive producers of the hit documentary, The Game Changers, a board member of Farm Sanctuary, and one of the leading Dharmic voices for improving animal welfare and advocating for plant-based diets. Hope you enjoy it. So we hear the terms plant-based diet. Um, and vegan diet used what seems to me to be increasingly interchangeably. Do you think those are the same thing? No, I think they're actually different terms. Plant-based concerns diet and health. It's usually used um, as a definition for consisting entirely of a plant-based or mainly of plant-based items. So you could technically eat a burger once in a while and be still be considered plant-based based, um, as long as you mostly or mainly eat plants. Um, for example, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is plant-based. He's not strictly or wholly plant-based, but he is mostly plant-based. Vegan is different from plant-based because it's uh, more of an ethical belief that animals do not uh, or should not be exploited or consumed in our food system, in clothing, makeup, etc. Uh, I consider myself a vegan. Uh, I do not wear pearls. I do not wear silk. I do not wear wool. I don't wear leather. And these are all animal products um, or they involve uh, suffering uh, for animals. Similarly, my diet is purely plant-based. So I don't eat marshmallows because they have gelatin. I I don't consume honey. I guess the easiest way to look at this is if you had an image associated with plant-based, it would be like a big piece of broccoli. But if you had an image associated with veganism, it would be of a cow, you know? So, so one is more focused on the treatment towards animals and, um, you know, one is more focused on diet and health and, and plants. Like, you know, you could, you could technically be an unhealthy vegan and just eat a lot of Oreo cookies. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I joked over the years, I've had friends that I called uh, chips and salsa vegans who who, who, uh, they're getting the philosophy, right. But perhaps not the nutrition. Right. Right. And you can be plant-based, but not vegan, but all vegans are plant-based. Do you think, um, from an animal welfare perspective, just to go down this one a little bit, do you think it's um, in a practical sense? Do you think there's a difference? I'm not talking a philosophical difference between them, but in terms of lessening the suffering for animals in the world, do you have, have any issues with the fact that it, se- it seems like plant-based has become the marketing term? Plant-based has become the marketing term. And, you know, there's three pillars to like the animal welfare movement. There's the health aspect, the environmental aspect, and the animal aspect. And, and plant-based 
is sometimes I think more focused on the health and the environmental aspects, not as often with the animal ethics of, of, of the space. Whereas the vegan movement is, is primarily focused on the animal welfare aspect. So there, there are differences um, and there's intersections, you know, where it, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled that people are adopting this, this health environmental aspect to plant-based living. Hey, we'll take it. <laughs> it benefits animals anyway. How did you make the transition from being a corporate lawyer to being uh, what seems like a full-time advocate for animal welfare and animal rights? Sure. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I live in Weston, Massachusetts. I have four children. I have two little adopted bunnies. Um, I'm an an animal advocate, a passionate believer in the One Health Doctrine, uh, which basically means that we can't ignore the interconnectedness among humans, animals, and our shared environment. Uh, I think in the past we viewed, you know, environment as climate change and, and nothing else. But today we're embracing more of a one health doctrine that what you do to animals inevitably affects the air we breathe, the the, the water we drink, um, the world we live in. So uh, the COVID pandemic has been a, a great example of this. We, you know, our exploitation of animals has led to this zoonotic disease that we, we can't seem to get rid of. Um, everything's connected. The more we recognize that every act affects one of those groups um, and creates an impact on one another, the sooner we'll be able to live in peace on this planet. So I, I started off uh, as a kid, just knowing, just knowing that my passion would be um, is animals. And I, I don't know where that came from. It just, it was like always there. It was nurtured by my parents who fed me a vegetarian diet. Um, you know, I remember my dad pulling over on the road all the time, whenever there was an animal that was killed and we'd say a prayer for the roadkill. We never killed insects. We grew up, um, in a Jane, uh, philosophy. So the main principle of Jainism is nonviolence, ahimsa. Um, so, so we lived that way and we believed that we should be vegetarian. Um, but we uh, also knew why we were vegetarian. We just didn't follow the way things are being done in the Jain religion. We felt like we were told what meat was and that beef is actually a cow that was killed and veal is actually a cow, a baby cow. Um, so I, I studied biomedical engineering at BU thinking I would one day invent technology that would replace animals in science experiments. I was so horrified by science experiments um, and then quickly realized I needed more education. So I pursued a career in law. Um, I studied patent law. I'm, I'm actually a licensed United States patent attorney. And I had all these hopes of inventing things and protecting patent inventions for animal, um, for, for, for devices that would replace uh, animals in science. My life then took me to Mumbai in 2005 when I got married and in Bombay, I started a family and just did the best I could um, to help animals. Uh, I rescued dogs off this. There were so many dogs that were hit um, by streetcars in, in India all the time. And I remember taking those dogs in my taxi and, and driving them to the animal hospital and paying for their care and praying for them. I remember rescuing a, a cat once from a there was a Ganpati festival on the streets uh, outside my building. And because of the fireworks and the loud noises, uh, so many animals and birds, and, and in particular, this little cat was just sitting there in the middle of the road, completely um, shocked by what 
what was happening around her. So we grabbed her, cleaned her up and, you know, brought her to a animal protect, an animal shelter where they actually found her a really nice home. And we named her Gowrie. And um, anyways, I also visited Bandrapoles, which are animal sanctuaries in India. And I also had the uh, incredible experience of attending. I think it was the first lecture given by a Jane Mara Saib who talked about uh, the violent nature of India's dairy industry. And this was quite alarming because at that time there was a big debate going on in the Jain culture of whether butter and ghee was acceptable uh, to consume as in the Jain culture. And there was a divide, but this uh, Jane Marasib got up there on a um, on a stage and had videos behind him showing the atrocities of the dairy industry and the suffering and the violent nature of it. And and the crowd was pretty receptive to it. Um, so so I, I did a lot of these things in India and learned about where India stood with respect to animal rights. Upon arriving in the U.S., my, my family invests in plant-based companies uh, as well as films. Our most recent film was The Game Changers, um, which was just incredible. I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to watch it. It's it's on Netflix, iTunes. It was actually, I think, the number one documentary film on iTunes last year. It was um, wow. That's I yeah. didn't know that. I mean, it, it get, I've seen it. It's seen it a couple times now, and it gets suggested to me all the time. I was unaware it was number one. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. The impact was huge. Um, another movie's coming out called the end of medicine by Keegan Kuhn, who focuses on antibiotic resistance, uh, of human beings that is caused by eating burgers, chicken, and all the processed meat in our food system. I'm aware of the origin of that, but many listeners may not. Uh, so why, why is, uh, the antibiotics that we are giving animals in factory farming conditions, mostly contributing to antibiotic so resistance. Almost, I think it's 86% of all of the antibiotics created, um, made by pharmaceutical companies are fed to farm animals. And this is a crisis. This is a public health crisis that uh, we are not always aware of. Um, you know, it's, it's only in 2017 that it became illegal to use antibiotics to support growing farm animals. So they were used for many, many years to make farm animals larger and bigger. And they, these animals are just pumped with, with these um, antibiotics. So now that's illegal. But what, you know, what's happening is that th there's a lack of transparency in how these antibiotics are used, which antibiotics are used, how, how many times the animals are being fed these antibiotics. Uh, we need better scientific data to specify research design and methods to address this link between antibiotics fed to food animals and then the subsequent impact on human antibiotic resistance. Current studies are only focused on probability methods and estimations of potential harm versus quantitative actual scientific studies. So there's this, this need to inform the public policy and the government has to fund agricultural research given the scale of antibiotic resistance. Uh, in my mind, it should be a national priority because we're, we're basically just unassumingly eating all of this food that is harming us. Um, and, you know, the U.S. funds 70 to 80 percent of biomedical research worldwide. So given that they do that, the need for the appropriate levels of funding is, is acute. You know, the other thing is getting this data. The data is often voluntarily given. It, it's not a mandatory thing that 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 farmers and, and food manufacturers and Tyson's has to actually report. So. Um, 
you know, food animals in so many ways are protected by the government. Our government supports the consumption of meat and dairy. We have over $20 billion of taxpayer money that subsidizes uh, meat and dairy by subsidizing the food that that these animals eat. Uh, It's an entire industry that needs to be more uh, transparent. We need to know who's paying for it, what types of diseases are reported. And, um, you know, the public needs to know and be constantly reminded of what goes into their food. So this movie will will unveil some of these some of the corporate and government deception that uh, that, that we are all um, a part of. What was the name of the film again? And is that going to be on net- end, end of medicine and, and it's going to be Netflix again or how are you distributing? To be decided, I we haven't determined how it will come out, but hopefully, uh, you know, Game Changers started off with iTunes and then they moved over to Netflix. So, um, you know, hopefully it'll be widely available. And do you have a release anticipated release date or when can people find that? The anticipated release date, I believe, is spring of 2021 when hopefully all good things will happen in that year. <laughs> so sometime in 2021. Fingers crossed on good things. Um, you mentioned invention before, inventing things to relieve the suffering of animals. When you're talking about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance due to consuming meat and factory farming and all that, how do you come down on um, lab-grown meat or cultured meat or I, the preferred industry term right now is escaping me, but essentially meat that is grown in a lab, right. created in a lab. How do you feel about that? Feel, um, you know, we're tackling this, this health crisis, this public health crisis of eating meat and dairy from many different angles. So there's a population of people like me who have never had meat in their lives you know, we're fine eating the way we've always eaten, but that's, you know, we're a small group of people. Most people, at least in the United States are, have been eating meat their whole lives and they, they're addicted to this taste, the taste of meat. And I I believe that, um, you know, whether you, whether you eat a beyond meat burger or an impossible burger or a you know, a lentil burger, if you can figure out a way to connect with this population that is so addicted to meat and replace some of these foods, you will move the needle. We will move the needle for better health. Sure, 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 sure. But I mean, lentil, uh, a lentil burger is obviously lentil, but beyond burger and impossible burger, those are still plant-based. I think there's a lot of pea protein in them and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm talking about like actually cultured meat, which is the, which is actually muscle. Right. So that, so that's, it's a process called cellular agriculture and um, also known as lab meat. We haven't figured out the exact term to put on it. It's also known as clean meat. So this is actual meat. Um, and you know what, there's a, there's a bunch of people who would love to eat that. And, and there, there are some people who find it to be a little, you know, different. And I think it, this is going to boil down to, um, acceptability. And I, and I think that there is a huge promise in cell ag because it's essentially the same thing as meat without using an animal. And the issue there is, so the science is there, the technology is there. The difficult issue with cellular agriculture is how to scale it up in such a way that it is a cost. It has the same economic aspect of a normal burger. So right now, I think it's like hundreds of dollars to make one of these burgers, but we're eventually working on scalability and figuring out the process to 
to make this a cheaper product. Uh, once we figure that out, I mean, who, how, there's so much you can do with that. You could make a customized burger in theory, right? Like if you're say if you're someone suffering from diabetes or, you know, hypertension, what if you could eat a burger that was customized for your health disposition? Like what, what if that burger was, was for people with diabetes and people, there's so much potential when you can manipulate a burger, the way we manipulate vitamins or the way we fortify milks or breads and, and, and cater these foods to be food as medicine. Uh, so I believe that there's more, there's a lot of potential there that a, a typical burger would not ever be able to provide. It seems to me though, that going back to the oneness or interconnectedness of these issues, environmental health, nutrition, health of the planet, et cetera, this sort of product solves one of those problems and not an insignificant one. Let's be clear, but I won. I don't think it actually helps with the nutritional aspect of it. When you go back to the first time I heard plant-based diet was in T Colin Campbell's, the China study. And it was looking at, you know, the nutritional aspects of how much meat's in your diet and then how that affects your life. And if people are still eating lab-grown meat, it seems to me that, that we haven't actually taken a look at the fact that if after a certain amount, leaving aside the animal welfare parts, it's not so good for you. It's not, you know, it, it has it impacts on your health in terms of cancer, in terms of all sorts of things. And it yeah. just it sits uneasy with me in a way. It seems to me to be a, sort of a tludge of a solution, right? It's I, I understand meeting people where they are, and the fact that Americans in particular eat a lot of meat. But if we're really going to get it at the health of the planet and the health of ourselves, is it a is it a big enough step? I don't know. Yeah, and, and I think that the way these the lab grown meat is designed it is it's designed in such a way that you can strip it of the fat, you can strip it of the you know cholesterol that meat has. Uh, you know, you only get cholesterol from meat. You, you don't get it from plants. So if you can design these lab grown cell ag products in such a way that they are healthier and optimally designed for your health disposition, I think there's nothing like it. It seems to be though, I don't want to, you know, go on about this one aspect in our short interview, but it seems to me, it's like, if you can be healthy and mindful of your impact upon the planet, reducing that, couldn't you just go back to the lentil burger? Yeah. And I think we need to provide many solutions, right? Like even as sure. a vegetarian who has been living this way my whole life, there are things I can do, right? But we have, we have such a big problem. Most people in the United States eat meat. We have to provide a solution for everyone, you know? So, so we have to have this multi-leveled, multi-tiered approach to tackling this, um, you know, whether it's addiction, whether it's, you know, just uh, wanting the taste, you know, or whether it's wanting something healthier or whether it's just learning more about this food and being more transparent. There's, there's so much we can do. And I think whether it's a, you know, a lentil burger, a beyond meat burger or a plant, you know, cell ag burger, there's also like, you know, the cell ag uh, burger can also be combined with uh, a lentil burger or, and, and people are talking about that as well. A lot of companies are working on combining some of these technologies 
to create that perfect balance, you know, where you have the taste, you have the nutrition and you have the environmental impact. So we'll see what everyone does with this. The good thing is we're all working together and we're communicating and it's, it's just such a buzzy thing right now that I, I have so much hope. You're on the, the board of farm sanctuary, which is a sanctuary for rescued farm animals. Uh, how did you get involved with that? And can you tell listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So Farm Sanctuary was founded in 1986 by Gene Bauer, who's an incredible human being. He rescued a sheep named Hilda many years ago in 1986. And this poor sheep was standing on top of a pile of dead sheep at a stockyard. Uh, he saved the sheep and started what is known today as Farm Sanctuary. Today, Farm Sanctuary has two locations, one in New York uh, in upstate New York, in a place called Watkins Glen, and one in uh, Los Angeles, just outside Los Angeles, California. They provide sanctuary to over a thousand uh, farm animals. Each farm animal has a name, it has a story, and uh, they're all treated with love and respect. I highly, you know, once COVID is over and the farms are open, the sanctuaries, I, I encourage all of you guys to go there and visit. You will be moved beyond. Through this sanctuary program, they prompt people to think about their food system and, and the animals that are tortured and, and, and used in, in our food system. And, you know, when you meet, it's just, it's, it's just an incredible display of compassion. For example, there's a sheep named Appa who was injured during her birth um, when her twin, her twin died and the farmer tried to, you know, this farmer tried to save her actually and yank her out. Um, but in the process broke her leg. Now in a normal uh, farm, this, this sheep would have just been killed, but the farmer felt something for her. It felt, he felt some sort of compassion or empathy towards his sheep who now has a leg that is jutted at a 90 degree angle. Um, so due to the compassion of this farmer, uh, Appa was moved to another farm and then from that farm moved to farm sanctuary where she now just lives there. Like she just lives in peace and visitors come and see her. She's still shy. She doesn't play with the visitors. She stays away, but she's bonded with a sheep named Holly, who is also missing. Uh, she's missing the back of her, uh, a part of the back of her uh, left leg. And also she, she plays with Sadie, who's a goat that was um, weakened by neurological issues. And it's just amazing that we have these uh, animals that are treated so badly in, in our food systems, but in, at Farm Sanctuary are treated with love, respect, kindness. And we, we spend so much time learning about them, healing them. There's also this, um, I'm sure or you might've heard of when Joaquin Phoenix uh, won the Academy Award for Best Actor uh, last year. And um, the day after he got, he got the award, he went uh, to a slaughterhouse and there was a mom uh, a, a mom cow who had just delivered a baby and the farmer had this policy of, he, 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 you know, he can't kill the baby cow at the slaughterhouse. So they got in touch with farm sanctuary through another organization. And Joaquin Phoenix went to that slaughterhouse and he picked up with his own hands, the baby cow and the mom followed. And he brought those cows over to farm sanctuary. Uh, Indigo is the baby and Liberty is the mom. And they, they live. And these are just examples of incredible compassion towards animals. And it kind of makes you think like, wow, look at these human beings 
saving these animals to, I mean, he just won the Academy Award. And, and the first thing on his mind the next day is to save this baby and, her, and, and allow this baby to live with her mom in sanctuary in peace. And, you know, on the, on the opposite side of that, you could be having a meal and throwing out half your, your beef that you ate. And it's just this paradox, you know, that, um, we're, we're a species as humans, we're a species of capable of incredible compassion. We don't want to see this, this, this pain, this violence, but at the same time, we don't want to give up our meat. And it's this meat paradox that places like farm sanctuary are, are constantly trying to deconstruct. Um, so I am a board member. I'm the vice chair. I, I, I'm so humbled to be there. And, um, I encourage everyone here to, to pay a visit. So what about products such as milk that is branded as a Hemsa milk for, to set the stage for people that haven't heard the term, there are a couple farms, um, both I believe in the UK and definitely in the United States who are raising cows and getting milk from them in a way that to repeat, you know, they're, they're thinking on it where the cows are treated with respect. They're not just, they're not treated as commodities and uh, for them being called a Himsa milk, it's obviously rooted in a attempted to be rooted in a tradition of nonviolence. What do you feel? How do you feel about that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a tough one. And I, I have met friends who, who are like, well, I drink a Himsa milk and I feel good about that. Yep. And that's what I'm going to do. Um, I, I'm not going to debate whether our religious and cultural history, you know, in the past consumed uh, dairy. Um, but I do know, and I do feel that the term Himsa milk is an oxymoron. Um, you know, although these animals in these farms are treated better than the animals on factory farms, you know, Himsa actually means, it, it means nonviolence, right? It's like a main tenant of, of Hinduism or Jainism or, or practically all religions of the world. Um, but there's no such thing as nonviolent milk. Even ahimsa milk uh, means that we are exploiting the reproductive system of that cow. So we're pumping her udders for milk, something that, you know, I think if she could talk, she would say, don't touch me. Don't do that. So we're exploiting her reproductive system. That milk, I mean, if, if as humans, if we feel that our milk as mothers go, should go to our children, why wouldn't she feel that that milk should go to her baby? But, it, it, you know, some of it does but not all of it does. Uh, so well, then what is the baby getting for nutrition if it's not getting the amount of milk that it should have been getting from its mom in the first place? So then we're, we're tampering with the right of the baby to receive that milk. Um, and eventually you, you can't control for population, right? So if you're allowing these animals at these so-called Ahimsa farms to display natural behaviors of reproduction and grazing and, and living in pastures. Well, they're going to have a lot of babies. So where do those babies go? And if it's a female baby, yeah, it probably gets to stay on the farm. But if it's a male baby, how many male babies are you going to allow to live their life out at that farm? You're not, you can't, you, you wouldn't have the space for that. So that boy, the baby boy goes to, is sold. And whether the Ahimsa farm opens that door and figures out where that baby eventually goes or whether they just write it off as, Oh, it was just given to another farmer. That baby boy is most probably killed in a veal farm. There's just so many issues with Ahimsa milk uh, that I just, I think, you know, we can't deny that animals still suffer 
that you're still exploiting the reproductive system of that animal. You're still tampering with a baby's natural right to have that milk. And you can't deny that you can live without that milk. You can live perfectly fine without that milk. So if you're actually abiding by the true definition of ahimsa, you shouldn't be drinking that milk, despite this justification and this um, this this attempt to overcome perhaps the guilt involved in in that incredible addictive, <laughs> you know, uh, nature of milk. In some of the emails that we exchanged before doing this, and this gets to some sort of myths around the need for milk. You mentioned that the, there's this idea that uh, to grow tall, to grow strong, yeah. that one needs to consume dairy and can, needs to consume milk. But you, you have some new research that you were mentioning that, that flies in the face of that. That says, no, you don't actually need this. Can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah. So as you know, uh, in the, uh, at least I can, I can talk about my own Indian culture and we, we have always been told you have to drink milk. And, you know, um, I drank milk as a kid too. This is what we were told. And, um, if you don't drink milk, you'll be short or you won't get your nutrition. And, and, you know, so I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Greger, um, Dr. Michael Greger, who is the author of the book, How Not to Die. He's a world-renowned expert on plant-based living and nutrition. And um, you know, I asked him this question. I said, why is it that people believe that drinking milk three times a day, especially in countries like India, it, it, you know, is linked to health and height? And he said, well, actually, it's it's not true. Like, you know, some of these studies come out of, um, you know, countries like India, where there is a, a big issue with uh, nutrition and there's food insecurity. So, yeah, if you compare a diet that is a, a, a bad diet, you know, like a diet that doesn't have all the nutrition that you need with a diet, an equivalently bad diet, but then you add three glasses of milk a day, you're going to see differences. But if you compare a good plant-based plant-based diet with a diet that has, you know, milk and dairy, he quoted a study and it's the, it's called the Adventist study. Um, it's a vegetarian study where it shows that the vegetarians are taller by one inch. Uh, and there's no differential, no, no real differential in the height of equally nutritious diets. Um, so, you know, when you look at these studies and we, when you, when you, when someone tells you something, you should always kind of question it. Well, what's your proof? Why do you think that? And if you dig deeper, you'll, you'll realize that, you know, these are myths, these are myths. Um, and most of them are supported by very powerful lobbyists in the meat and dairy industry. Uh, so I was very, I was, I was thrilled to hear that vegetarians are actually an inch taller if you compare equivalent diets. With, with dairy products so entrenched in, in the traditional diets of people of, of the Dharmic religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, how do you talk to people about cutting out dairy, about uh, adopting a vegan diet? And, so, and what sort of pushback do you get with that? Yeah. So one of the biggest pushbacks, which is really interesting, is that, yeah, you know, you can convince people that there's a lot of suffering involved and and they'll agree with you once, you know, at least once they've talked to me, they, they, there's, it's hard. So, but the biggest setback, which I was surprised by is chai. People cannot give up their chai. And, you know, we make chai with milk. Traditionally, we make it with, with dairy milk and 
cow's milk. And, and it's just something that Indians drink. Like we drink, you know, all the time in the more four or five times a day. And, and that was one of the biggest, uh, setbacks, uh, that I kept coming across when I spoke to people about giving up, uh, 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 dairy, but then you're, you're, you're running up against dairy and caffeine and sugar. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a tough one, but I figured a solution. So I uh, figured out a solution. I tried all the milks and yeah, I mean, soy milk is awful when you, when you, when you try to make chai, almond milk doesn't work. Rice milk doesn't work, but oat milk works. So if you can actually use oat milk in exactly the same way that you use dairy milk, and I actually, you know, tested this out with my mother-in-law and some friends and I, I made the milk and I kind of, tr- I made the chai using oat milk and I tricked them. And I said, which ones, you know, do, do, is, is there anything difference here? Is there, you know, do you, and everyone, no one could tell the difference. So, you know, if that's your only obstacle to adopt adopting a vegan diet, try oat milk. And the brand I like is Oatly. Uh, you can find it at pretty much any grocery store, but there are others and they're all, they're all great, but it boils like milk. It, it, do, it does everything. And there's no, there's no cholesterol, <laughs> but aside from the chai, I think, you know, people do they do say that in our history, in our religious history, in our cultural history, you know, you see laddus, you see, you see ghee, you see, you know, people milking animals. So if they were doing it back then, how can it be wrong today? And I, you know, then what I say to them is that if you really believe in dharma, you know, dharma means the truth, right? But it, it doesn't mean any truth. It means the right truth. You must always quest for the right truth. And, and if you seek the right truth, and you combine it with your, your, your belief in ahimsa, which is, you know, nonviolence. And you put those two together. The only, the only logical path is to leave animals alone. Um, so I, I believe that you have to teach your children. You have to teach everyone around you. You have to be that pillar of strength. Uh, and, and that really works, you know, uh, children, especially they, they know what meat is. They get it from the beginning. So just go with that, you know, tell them that veal is a baby cow that, you know, eggs, oh my gosh, eggs. It's like a massive violation to the female re- reproductive system. It, it's full of just suffering. Um, you know, I, I think it's not only important to feed your children a plant-based diet as, as a Hindu, as a Jain, but also to explain what meat is and also the suffering involved. What's the connection for you between ecofeminism and adopting a plant-based diet? You know, as a, as a mother, um, I have four children. I, you know, I, I am just, I'm shocked by how female animals are treated in our food system. If you look at uh, egg laying hens, they normally in a lifetime, you know, lay maybe a dozen eggs in their lifetime. But these factory farmed hens are laying 300 eggs in their lifetime. Um, And if you look at, um, you know, if you look at cows, they, uh, you know, it's really sad. They they're artificially inseminated by a rod they are put on a rape rack and that's not a term I made up. That's actually an official agricultural term for the cow. Uh, and, and because the cow is so peaceful and capable of domestication, I mean, you could technically milk a horse, but it would never let you do it. But because this cow is so um, just benevolent, it is exploited. I mean, we have, we have just mass produced them. We have, 
you know, we use, we, 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 they, they normally can live like 13 to 15 years, yet they only live like two years. Their babies are taken away from them. It's it just the, everything that the cow goes through is just so much. And, um, you know, I, I just feel like as a woman, you know, or as a mom, we need to connect this. We need to connect what we have gone through and how we, how we choose to advocate for other females, even if they're from a different species. You know, there's a really interesting story that I learned about actually at the beginning of all of my animal activism. And I I came across this story, which I'd love to share. It's really quick, but um, there was a a veterinarian, a Cornell vet. Uh, Her name was, is Dr. Holly Cheever. And she, you know, she, she, she was a veterinarian and she is a veterinarian and she was living near a few farms and the farms would call her whenever they had an issue with one of their farm animals. And one day uh, a farmer called her and said, I have this puzzling, puzzling situation. There's this brown cow on my farm that I've had for many, many, many years. It has had five calves naturally and something weird happened. Um, it came to the milking. It basically had its, its sixth birth. You know, the baby was taken away from the cow. And when we brought the cow to the milking line, she had no milk. Now, normally all of our cows after they're, you know, having, after they've had their baby, they have 12 and a half gallons uh, per day. And so the so Dr. Cheever was like, wow, this is, this is, this is interesting. So she, she visited the, 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 the female cow. She checked the health, the vital signs looked healthy. Um, you know, no, no, you know, no health issues, but the udder was totally empty. And days went by and they just couldn't figure out what was wrong with this cow until one day the farmer followed the cow out to her pasture. And this was one of those benevolent farms or maybe even a himsa farms, you know, where the, the animals are actually allowed to pasture and go out. So the farmer followed the, fa- the cow and saw that at the edge of the woods, there was a baby there. And it was one of those unique situations where the cow had twins. and. She had the memory of all of the babies that were taken. She must have had the memory of all of the babies that were taken away from her before. So she decided to keep one and hide it from the farmer. And the other baby was given to the farmer. Well, anyways, it was a sad story. And the baby was found and eventually sold as veal. But it it just shows you that, you know, these five sense beings are capable of much more than what we as a society have made them out to be. Uh, you know, I mean, they have a gestation period of nine months. That, that's the same as human beings. They cry for five days when their baby's taken away from them. So if, you know, if we really believe in Dharma and Ahimsa, we can't deny this suffering. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.